Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name's Joe Wolfe. I'm the Dean of Arts and Humanities here at UCL. And uh, I'm very pleased to uh, welcome you to what is, in a way, uh, two, in, two events in one tonight. It's uh, Dylan Knox's inaugural lecture, but also it's an event in our Festival of the Arts that uh, you may, I can see some people looking at their booklet. Now, we're only into the second day of the Festival of the Arts, and there's another three days free of events here at UCL. So if you haven't registered for any events, haven't seen them, do take a look at the brochure that you've got. So uh, tonight, uh, the introduction to the lecture will be given by Professor John Took, who is from the Department of Italian within the School of European Language, Culture and Society. Uh, that will be followed by our inaugural lecture, which will be followed by a vote of thanks from Professor Axel Kerner, who's in the Department of History. Uh, my job today is just to tell you the running order, which I've done, and to invite you afterwards to a drinks reception, which will be held downstairs. So uh, I'll hand you over now to Professor John Took, who will give the introduction. It's my job, very briefly, to uh, introduce uh, uh, Dilwyn. Uh, this I feel uh, reasonably qualified to do because he and I have been colleagues for a long time now in the Department of Italian. I can't imagine that there are many people here who will need an introduction to Dilwyn. Uh, he has been very conspicuous over the past uh, five years or so as the director, the first director of the School of European Languages and Cultures. Uh, he has uh, achieved a mountainous, uh, a purgatorial task uh, in bringing departments uh, together to open up new possibilities for teaching and new kinds of research projects, and his work has been enormously appreciated uh, in this. But this is uh, preeminently uh, a scholarly occasion, uh, and we need to say just a little bit uh, about uh, Dilwyn's work uh, as a scholar in the Renaissance period. The first thing to say is that uh, University College has a tremendous, but a tremendous uh, tradition in Renaissance studies, a very august tradition. It goes back a long way. Long before I came here, Roberto Weiss uh, was uh, a prominent Renaissance historian here. Giovanni Aquilecchia, uh, to the fore amongst uh, Renaissance uh, philologists. John Hale was in this uh, department, uh, a luminary amongst uh, Italian Renaissance uh, historians. So it is a very an ample tradition, a wonderful tradition that we have of Renaissance studies, and that's the tradition in which Dilwyn stands. But he brings to it a set of skills all of his own, because Dilwyn is, and if my characterization is slightly wrong, he will correct it, but I think this is what needs to be said. He is preeminently a historian of ideas. He works in the field of Renaissance philosophy, Renaissance cosmology. His authors uh, are the uh, Renaissance Platonists, uh, Pico, Marsilio, uh, particularly Giordano Bruno, and of late uh, Copernicus. So he works in the field of Renaissance philosophy and cosmology. Uh, he brings uh, to this, then, a very, set, uh, a very special set uh, of skills. Uh, I have sat in on Dilwyn's uh, seminars on several occasions, most recently in the Warburg, and he always is more than ordinarily sure-footed uh, in picking out, in lighting upon distinctive emphases. Renaissance philosophy is intensely eclectic, intensely syncretist, at times intensely eccentric. Uh, but Dillman is always able to thread his way through uh, to explain, to clarify whether it's neo-peripateticism, neo-Platonism, whether it's Christianity, one or other of the various forms of hermeticism, he always seems immensely on the ball. 
So we have something really rather special in Dilwyn in that he stands in this tradition that we have and with the consummate skill in this particular area of Renaissance studies. Looking over the specification for tonight, uh, uh, I just had a word with Dylan. He may have eliminated some of these things, but on the specification it had a little bit about beetles, a little bit about heliotropes, a little bit about uh, intelligibility. There are some very fine, very distinctive emphases here. And those skills which I mentioned, the, uh, the, the, Dylan's uh, skill in... Um, Clarifying the precise emphasis, that I think is what we shall have and what we shall enjoy this evening. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the Professor of Renaissance Studies, uh, Dilwyn Knox, uh, and congratulations, Dilwyn, and we look forward to what we are about to receive. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. Uh, I've passed now from irony to hyperbole, and now we're going on to metaphor. Uh, lux intelligibilis. Uh, just how many years I've been composing this lecture, I'm not really sure. But uh, I must be brief this evening, so I'm going to offer you more of a poem than a proof, and more of a meditation than a lecture. Or perhaps just a dream. No better place then to begin when, than in Alice in Wonderland. Chapter 12, at the episode in which the knave of hearts is being tried for having stolen the queen's tarts. The white rabbit produces what he believes is a conclusive piece of evidence, proving that the knave is guilty. A scrap of paper on which are written some verses of apparent nonsense. He reads them out to the jury. Alice, who has been called to testify, declares that the verses do not have an atom of meaning in it. This is a quotation now from Alice's, Alice in Wonderland. The jury all wrote down on their slates, she doesn't believe that there's an atom of meaning in it, but none of them attempted to explain the paper. If there's no meaning in it, said the king, that saves a world of trouble, you know, as we needn't try to find any. And yet, I don't know, he went on, spreading out the verses on his knee and looking at them with one eye. I seem to see some meaning in them, and after all, said I could not swim. You can't swim, can you? He added, turning to the knave. The knave shook his head sadly. Do I look like it? He said. Which he certainly did not, being made entirely out of cardboard. You may be forgiven for thinking that the least puzzling moment in this conversation is the king's comment that he seems to see some meaning in the scrap of paper. I see what you mean is, well, after all, just everyday language, as there are many other kindred expressions that imply that to understand something is a sort of mental seeing in the light of what you say. Shed light on the problem. Other, problem, other examples will occur to you. Yet to uh, see a meaning is an odd expression, one that deserves to be in Alice in Wonderland. What do we see when we think? The analogy becomes stranger the more you think about it. Lewis Carroll realized this. The king screws up an eye, as if doing so will help him see the meaning, an atom of meaning. Furthermore, familiar though the metaphor may be to us, it is not that common among the world's languages. This is at least what the translations of Alice in Wonderland teach us. Uh, the metaphor occurs in the Italian, French, Spanish and Icelandic translations, among others. But it does not occur in the Afrikaans, Basque, Georgian, Japanese, Chinese, Bengali, Eskimo, Russian, Faroese, or for that matter, Esperanto translations of the work. I've become a professional menace 
past two weeks asking people these questions. The list could be greatly extended. Many translations simply replace the metaphor with words meaning, I think. An example is the first Japanese translation published in 1929. Uh, thank you, Joe, for this uh, invaluable piece of advice. Translated literally back into English, it runs, all the same, I think there is some meaning. Said I could not swim, you probably can't swim, can you? He said, to, turning to the knave. Other translations replace it with other metaphors. To get or to grasp is a common alternative. The Zulu translation, translated back into English, means because I just begin to get the idea of this line that says, said I can't swim, after all you can't swim, he said, turning to, I cannot pronounce this word, nekuwinkulu. This is the preferred idiom of other languages too, for example, German. There's no relation between German and Zulu, of course, which does not use the metaphor of seeing to denote understanding. Thank you, Mikhail. The metaphor is not, then, what the 20th century intellectual historian Max Blumenberg called an absolute metaphor. That is, a metaphor that we cannot do without if we want to describe an abstract idea of some kind. It is, perhaps, to push a point, idiosyncratic. Why do we use it? Where does it come from? Our story must begin in ancient Greece with Plato. How do we know something? asked Plato. He replied with an analogy. Sight entails three things. The ability to see something, an object to see, and light. So in the same way, to understand something entails three things. An ability to understand, your mental equipment, a mental object, this object being for Plato, the intelligible ideas or archetypes of things. And thirdly, an equivalent of some kind to the light that illuminates physical objects. Here's an excerpt from a passage in the Republic where Plato, for the first time and last, proposes the idea. The two speakers are Socrates, who represents Plato's views, and Plato's elder brother, Glaucon. Socrates. The eyes, when a person directs them towards objects on which the light of day is no longer shining, but that of the moon and stars only, see dimly and are nearly blind. They seem to have no clear vision, clearness of vision in them. Glaucon. Very true. That's more or less his role throughout. He just says, yes, yes, yes. Socrates. But when they are directed towards objects on which the sun shines, they see clearly and there is sight in them. Yes. The soul is like the eye. When resting upon that upon which the truth and being shine, the soul perceives and understands and is radiant with intelligence. But when turned towards the twilight of becoming and perishing, then she has opinion only and goes blinking about and is first of one opinion and then of another and seems to have no intelligence. Just so. Now, there are two features of this account that I must ask you to bear in mind for what follows. The first is that Plato is merely drawing an analogy. He is doing no more than that. Ulrich von Willemowitz Möllendorf, one of the towering figures of Germanic, German philology and philosophy, and a foe of Friedrich Nietzsche, wrote uncompromisingly, the analogy of the sun is also only an image, a metaphor. I'm built. Few have dared to contradict such a master. It was endorsed, for example, in Werner Beiwalter's in his Erlangen dissertation of 1957, Lux Intelligibilis, from which I have stolen the title of my talk this evening. The second point to remember 
is that Socrates is speaking about understanding something in an ordinary, everyday sense. For example, a mathematical truth. Three angles of a triangle make 90 degrees, 180, sorry. <laughs> 90, <laughs> whichever one's right, 180 degrees. Plato was not, that is, thinking of some glorious epiphany, a divine being appearing in blazing light as described by Homer or some other ancient Greek poet. Nor was he thinking of an illumination of a kind reserved for religious initiates. To the contrary, in this instance, as elsewhere in his works, Plato was appropriating the language of mystery religions, which he disliked because they were accessible to everyone, philosopher and ignorant alike, and converting them to philosophical purposes. Plato's analogy is distinctive. In Buddhist and Chinese thought, divine apparitions are routinely described in terms of light, but ordinary intellection is not. In Indian thought, there are occasional glimpses of similarities. The Indian word best describing philosophy is dashena, dashana, sorry, from the root drush, meaning to see. The Upanishads occasionally speak of Atman, the absolute reality of things discovered introspectively as the light producing knowledge in the individual. But as far as I can see, I'm sorry, as far as I know, philosophical traditions other than that of ancient Greece and those determined by it do not describe ordinary understanding, an ordinary standing of a proposition or an idea or of a geometrical proposition in the way that Plato does. Idiosyncratic though it might be, Plato's metaphor had an extraordinary fortune in Greek and ancient Latin antiquity. Partly this was because his pupil Aristotle, quite unnecessarily, used the light analogy at one point to describe how we know things, even though his own account of how we abstract knowledge from sense data had no need of such an explanation. The most decisive reason for its success, however, was monotheism, whether in its Greek or Abrahamic dress. Ancient Greek adherents of Plato's philosophy, Plotinus, Proclus, and others, converted Plato's inner light into a principle of intelligibility and order descending from the first principle of things, God understood in philosophical terms. In this modified form, the metaphor lent itself perfectly to the theological needs of the monotheistic religions uh, to which Greek philosophy mingled, with which Greek philosophy mingled, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The books of scripture that these three religions shared repeatedly spoke of God as light. When Moses ascends Mount Horeb, he witnesses the burning bush, symbolizing for all three religions, God's miraculous energy, sacred light and illumination. Psalm 27 comments that the Lord is my light and salvation. The emphasis on divine light in the Christian New Testament is no less emphatic. On the road to Damascus, Paul is so dazzled by the intelligible light of God that he loses the ordinary powers of vision. The most famous witness of all, of course, is St. John. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. In him was life, and the life was the light of, the men, of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. For Origen, Gregory, Augustine, and the other church fathers, and for their equivalents in the two other religious traditions, it was a simple task to blend the Greek doctrine of lux intelligibilis with scriptural accounts of God's epiphany, as recorded in the Bible or other scripture. From this fusion derived the many and various traditions of light metaphysics, illumination, and mysticism that flourished in these three religions. Father 
from being a gloomy, penumbral world following on from the so-called Dark Ages, Middle Ages was ablaze. The light of prophecy, the light of tradition, the light of scripture, the light of faith, uncreated light, the light of truth, the light of this, that, and the other. Dante's paradise, for example, is an emporium, a selfridges of intelligible light. Just one of countless examples occurs in the fourth canto of Paradise, Canto 4, where Dante converses with Beatrice. I can well see that our intellect is never sated unless the truth shines upon it, says Dante the pilgrim. The miniature above the quotation shows another moment in Dante's journey through a light-filled paradise when he sees a blinding point of light, God, surrounded by the angelic intelligences. From the 6th century onwards, every saint wore a halo, a sort of condensed frisbee of intelligible light hovering above the head, symbolizing their enjoyment of eternal life in heaven. Duccio's maestà will give you a sense of just how overwhelming this dazzled intelligible light could become. There's hardly enough room for all of their halos. The Middle Ages, it would seem, was a continuous display of pyrotechnics with bursting Roman candles and St. Catherine wheels. I make no apologize for these terrible puns. Uh, this evening, I'm allowed to behave badly. So dazzling and so noisy, indeed, was this display of intelligible light that the church found difficulty containing it. Claims to individual illumination challenged its authority and its providential status as the arbiter of all things Christian. A St. Francis or St. Catherine of Siena wagging their fingers at the church every now and again was one thing, but they must be the exceptions. To curtail its excesses, it needed to monitor control the channels of illumination. Order must prevail over enthusiasm. The altarpiece on the screen exemplifies the church's theological response. It's not the only one, but it's as good an example as you will get. In the center is St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor, the greatest of all medieval theologians, wearing his halo. Directly above him is Christ. From Christ beam down rays of intelligible light into the halos of St. Paul and Moses and the four evangelists. We may not be able to see them in the back, but I, so I made a little uh, um, close-up. I hope you can see lights, beams of light that are coming in from Christ into the evangelist there. Uh, you may not be able to see these rays, but as I say, they are there. The rays descend, curiously enough, from Christ's mouth. Although, when we remember that the Logos is light and it is the word, the word it is not so strange after all. More light, ray, ray, more light rays beam into St. Thomas from the books that St. Paul, Moses, and the evangelists hold in their hands. To Thomas's left and right are, respectively, Aristotle and Plato, dressed curiously as Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> Perhaps because uh, it was commonly thought that Plato visited Egypt and the Holy Lands to learn some truths there. Aristotle's and Plato's books, the great pillars of human reason, beam intelligible light into Thomas. At the bottom is Averroes, Ibn Rashid, the Arabic commentator on Aristotle, whom Thomas, uh, like many others, used to help him understand Aristotle. And there you can see a ray of light arriving from his book, and Averroes because, of course, he is uh, Islamic, looking downwards rather than upwards at the truth above him. A light ray rises from his book, lying on the ground beside him. Beneath T Thomas, too, are the clergy and the laity, uh, men only, I'm afraid, 
bathed in intelligible light emanating from Thomas's works. Note one thing. There is no light ray leading directly from Christ to Thomas. God inspires Thomas indirectly through scripture and then through Plato and Aristotle and elsewhere. Anyway, Lux intelligibilis, intelligible light, has clearly made its mark. But success has come at a terrible price. Those two distinctive features that I asked you to remember, what has become of them? Plato had proposed no more than a metaphor. We understand truths every day, or quite complicated philosophical truths, in the same way as we see something. But that mental light that he talked about has now turned into something real, more than just real, a lux intelligibilis that exists as God's presence in the world and our understanding of that divine presence. More galling still, Plato's metaphor devised to transform the language of mystery religion to philosophical ends has now become suffused with grandiose religious connotations. Not that Plato's metaphor had been forgotten altogether. Medieval authors sometimes commented that Plato seemed to have said something similar to the Gospel of St. John. Here is a passage from an early 15th century theologian, Spanish, uh, somebody called Alonso Tostado, an important enough man in his day. Some people say that Plato said, all that is recounted in the first chapter of the Gospel of St. John, from in the beginning was the word, down to the verse, there was a man sent by God, and they say that Augustine said this. To start of being the diligent man that he was, tried to discover if there was any truth in this claim, unsuccessfully. St. Augustine had not said what these people said, whoever they were. Plato had understood metaphysical truths better than any other pagan philosophy and certainly better than Aristotle. The next quotation. Aristotle surpasses everyone in the knowledge of natural things, but Plato has no equal in divine matters. Many of his works, however, have perished because scribes have neglected or been unable to acquire them. But then anyway, we shouldn't expect Plato to have understood by reason alone the truths revealed supernaturally in scripture. The next quotation. Although Plato knew these things, that the divine light illuminated all mankind, he did so, however, only in a very confused way and not fully in the sense that St. John was speaking about. Yet just at the moment that Alonso Tostado was writing begins a new chapter, an extraordinary one in our story. I must take you to Renaissance Florence, shown here in a map made at almost exactly the time, 1470s, to which I'm now transporting you. More exactly, I'm taking you to Careggi, about four miles north of the cathedral in Florence. Round about there, this rather idealized map. At the time, the locality was dominated by one of the several imposing villas, the Villa Careggi, belonging to the Medici family. The second slide of the villa, exaggeratedly bucolic though it may be, will give you a better sense of the villa and its surroundings the modern photograph, since the villa's now been trans, uh, now a hospital. Here, at least, we can see the villa serving as a farm, as it did in the Medici's day. Now, in 1463, Cosimo de' Medici, the pater familias, gave a young man called Marsilio Ficino 
aged 29 at the time, a modest house, together with the means to live there, near to this villa. Quite where we do not know exactly. Let us say that it is this building. In return for his patronage, Cosimo de' Medici charges Mosilio with the task of translating Plato's works from the Greek, together with other Greek works associated with the Platonic corpus. Plotinus, Proclus, Porphyry, and other terrifying names like that. And there Marsilio sits for the next 37 years, also doing just that. What bliss. 37 years of funded research leave. <laughs> Seen against the larger tapestry of things, his efforts were part of the assimilation of Greek learning that had been taking place for many years in the Latin West, an undertaking that had taken on new urgency with the fall of Constantinople in 1453 to the Ottoman forces commanded by Sultan Memhid II. With that cataclysmic event, Latin Christendom, above all Italy, became the refuge of Greek learning, hence Ficino's endeavors. Who is this young man? He is the son of one of the Medici's doctors. Like many of his contemporaries, he has a predilection for classical philosophy. Uh, a little bit too much of a predilection, according to some of his elders. Some four or five years earlier, he had written a commentary on Lucretius's philosophical poem on the nature of things, which set out the basic tenets of Epicurean philosophy. Atomism, which in its materialist reduction of all things to body and void, and its outright denial of individual immortality, was anathema to Christianity. Ficino soon regretted this youthful folly and destroyed his sole manuscript, the cause of much gnashing of teeth by Renaissance scholars today. All the same, it is worth bearing in mind that Ficino is a penchant for risque in philosophical matters. He moves on to safer things, a safer venture, Plato, the first task being to translate Plato's works into Greek, from Greek into Latin, the language of learning of the time. The Spanish theologian Tostado, whom I mentioned just now, had lamented only two decades previously that Plato's works were virtually unknown. Ficino, thanks to the Medici's agents, has manuscripts of them. Now let us imagine the young Marsilio sitting at his desk in that villa. He comes to the passage in Plato's Republic that I've just read to you at the beginning. Plato says that to understand is a form of mental seeing. To know is to see the archetypal truths, the platonic forms, illuminated by an intelligible light of some kind. Plato isn't describing a special illumination, transporting the divine mind, sorry, transporting the mind into a divine rapture of any sort. It's just what happens when we understand something, whatever it is, when you understand the properties of that triangle with 180 degrees. And then a, a penny, or rather, un fiorino piccolo, the equivalent, drops. Was this not the same light that the Gospel of St. John announced? The true light that enlightens every man who comes into this world. Ficino not only drew this association, he made it the guiding principle of his philosophy. He tells us this himself in his commentary on the epistles of St. Paul. In my Platonic theology, I have shown by Platonic arguments that all divine things by this he means truths, because truths are eternal, 
and therefore divine in that sense, is opened inwardly by divine light. These arguments are drawn in particular from Plato's Republic, where Plato explains that just as the eye sees what is related to the sun, that is, sunlit things, thanks to the sun, so too the soul perceives divine things by the very light of God. Hence, James says that all light of truth comes from above the Father, from the Father, sorry, comes above from the Father of lights. As John says, all it illuminates, sorry, from the Father who illuminates, as John says, all men who come into this world. This is, if we stop to think about it, a rather extraordinary statement. It amounts to Christ is present in us when we understand the proposition that a triangle has 180 degrees. Not just us, but everyone. Past and present. Christian, pagan, Jew, Muslim, Brahmin. Those virtuous pagans who had not heard of the Christian dispensation were not, after all, excluded from grace and salvation, as many Christian theologians and Dante had famously described in the Inferno. Nor were the many contemporary pagans ignorant of the gospel through no fault of their own in some far-off island in the Atlantic. Everyone was saved, provided they made use of that intelligible light that had been given to everybody. Let me try to convey the enormity of this conclusion by taking you back to the altarpiece of St. Thomas. St. Thomas is inspired by the divine light of Christ, but only indirectly through scripture, and also Plato and the others. There is, I have mentioned, as I mentioned, no light ray leading directly from Christ down to St. Thomas. Nor is there a ray leading directly from Christ to the assembled clergy and laity down at the bottom. Thomas is their mediator, filtering and relaying the truth discoverable in scripture, ancient philosophy, and the natural world, the last being symbolized in the concentric circles of the cosmos behind him. You may not be able to see them, but these are the circles. What Ficino has proposed instead is represented in this engraving, a selfie, made a little more than a hundred years after Ficino had died, but illustrating neatly enough what Ficino said and believed. The individual has become autonomous. He or she could fulfill him or herself intellectually and no longer needed the intermediary of the church or scripture to do so. The data coming from the external world comes via the sense organs to the faculties of the mind that deals with images. Just make a little close-up for you here. You can see on the left, underneath the words, the mundus sensibilis, that is the world of data coming into the mind and it's being processed uh, in the forehead, near the forehead, by the imaginative uh, faculties. Knowledge of divine things, by contrast, descends in a hefty beam, a plank of lux intelligibilis. And there you can see it beaming down into his head. How little, I feel, I should add in passing, modern neuroscience has progressed. Not only has the myriad of scanners failed to record this infusion of divine light, it has also overlooked the seat of consciousness when it is plain for all to see. Here it is. Just there, the worm of consciousness between the imaginative faculties and the intellect, something that comes from Plotinus. You heard it here first. 
I'd love to explain more about this illustration, but I must move on. To come back to Marsilio Ficino, we have, in short, returned to a full-blooded Pelagianism. The Church is not the unique dispenser of divine illumination. Through our unaided efforts, we can discern good from evil and freely act in such a way that we can perfect ourselves. We are not a handful of dust. We are point of light. A thousand years of theology has been undone at a stroke. I think, therefore, I am divine and saved. Contemporaries understood what Ficino was up to. But protected by the Medici, he was able to brush off criticisms that he received from time to time. Though daring in what he said, he expressed himself cautiously, almost enigmatically, through the philosophical jargon of Neoplatonism, which remained impenetrable to most. He was no firebrand. Many of those who followed Ficino's lead, however, lacked the protection of powerful patrons and did not have his circumspection. They paid the consequences. In 1533, the Roman Catholic authorities in the city of Vignes, 20 miles south of Lyon, ordered Michael Servetus to be burned at the stake together with his books for his doctrines concerning the Trinity. Central to his theology was the claim that the Logos, as described in the Gospel of St. John, was God, the lux intelligibilis, eternally illuminating all mankind, wherever they were, whenever they lived. A day before his execution, Servetus escaped from his dungeon and fled to Calvin's Geneva. An unwise move. Calvin and Servetus in previous years had engaged in a violent theological debate. On account of what Calvin decreed his execrable heresies, Servetus was arrested, tried, and condemned to death at the stake. This time, his Houdini instincts failed him. To make sure he burned nicely, the pyre on which he was burned was made up of his own books. In the background of this portrait, you see him being incinerated. Outraged, like many others, one of his contemporaries, Sebastian Castillo, an erstwhile friend and admirer of Calvin, wrote a tract, Should Heretics Be Persecuted? a plea, one of the first of its kind, for religious toleration and freedom of conscience in religious matters. There were many ma other mat uh, martyrs of lux intelligibilis. Perhaps the best known of all is Giordano Bruno, a Dominican friar like St. Thomas Aquinas himself, whom he admired. Brewer bolted from his convent in 1576, disposing, as he thought wrongly, of some incriminating texts owned, that he owned by stuffing them down the latrine. They were discovered and used as evidence against him. I don't like to think too much about how that went happened anyway. <laughs> Thereafter, he moved from city to city, town from town to town in Europe, with nothing but his wits to live on. He moved around all of those places that are indicated on the map, identified by name on this map, making more or less a circle leading from, shall we say, Rome up to uh, Oxford and then down, down, back again and back to Venice and then finally back to Rome again. Describing himself as a philosopher, he tried repeatedly to find a post at a university somewhere, anywhere, Catholic or Protestant. 
And somehow during the 14 years that he was on the run, he managed to compose 46 treaties. Yet headstrong and opinionated, opinionated he repeatedly fell afoul of religious authority. He has the distinction of being the only known Renaissance philosopher to have been excommunicated by all three major confessions, Calvinist, Catholic, and Lutheran. His reputation preceded, preceded him wherever he went in a dispatch dated 28th of March in 1583, the English ambassador in Paris, Henry Cobham, alerted Francis Walsingham to Bruno's impending arrival. Il signor Dr. Giordano Bruno Nolano, a professor in philosophy, intendeth to pass into England, whose religion I cannot recommend. Philosophically, Bruno hatched the egg that Bruno Ficino had laid. His views resemble, to a remarkable degree, those of Spinoza. The universe was an infinite, single substance of which individual things, including human beings, were transient modes. Pain and evil were no more than instances of a ceaseless vicissitude that finite, sentient things like ourselves perceived subjectively and partially as harmful. The bedrock of his thinking was that the universe was infinite, containing an infinite number of Copernican solar systems. Here is an engraving that he made himself for one of the books that he published in London in 1584. He rather fancied himself as an engraver, but he was just terrible at it. So I, I pass on to the next slide, which is a much better illustration. This infinite universe, though ultimately one, was made up of two basic principles, the passive principle of matter, understood in the platonic vein as an indeterminate exten extension or space, and the active principle, our friend, the lux intelligibilis. No less indeed is that God, that intelligible light, wholly present everywhere in this intelligible world than is the space of this infinite perceptible universe. Bruno finally suffered the same fate as Servetus. During his trial, he defied the Pope, who presided over the sittings, and his inquisitors, including Cardinal Bellarmine. You will be more fearful of having passed this sentence than I am in having received it. Shortly afterwards, he was burned at the stake and denounced posthumously as an arch-heretic. It is reasonable to denounce Bruno, wrote Marine Messin several decades later, a friend of René Descartes, as one of the most evil men that has ever walked this earth. Fateful words. For during the second half of the 18th century, when Spinoza passed from being a heinous atheist to, in Herder's estimation, someone comparable, indeed, I quote, undoubtedly still more divine than St. John, Bruno, whose philosophy resembled that of Spinoza, was carried along in Spinoza's wake and became exalted as the precursor of modern philosophy. We have arrived, not by chance, at the Enlightenment. We have arrived, that is, at the age of reason. The period, very roughly, from 1650 to 1820, during which cultural and intellectual forces, the caricature in Western Europe, emphasized reason, analysis, and individualism, rather than traditional lines of authority, particularly that of the Roman Catholic Church. The blaze of intelligible light 
is now almost too much to bear. As befitting an age that dubbed itself the Enlightenment, in this frontispiece of Diderot's Encyclopédie, the light of reason pours down on truth, on, uh, pours down on truth in philosophy. Its balmy rays bring reconciliation and understanding to the world's religions in this alternative depiction. Plato's metaphor has triumphed. Or has it? Something isn't quite right. Lux intelligibilis, intelligible light, is hardly a household expression nowadays. You probably came here, very kindly, wondering what on earth I was going to talk about for some enlightenment. Professional historians of theology and philosophy know of it, but no one else does. We use the expression, I see, without even realizing that it's a metaphor. Lux intelligibilis has, for all intents and purposes, vanished. Why? I'm not well enough versed in the intellectual and cultural history of Europe and of those worlds, such as the United States, that it has influenced, to give you a good answer. But I shall hazard a guess. Ever since Theodore Adorno blamed the Enlightenment for Los Angeles, cultural historians and sociologists have pointed out its shortcomings. Reason, analysis, the march of progress, triumphant scientific method, the things that the Enlightenment stood for has done its best to drain the numinous from humanist existence, humanist, sorry, the numinous from human existence, and in so doing, strangled suffocated, extinguished, choose whatever metaphor you like, from lux intelligibilis. To flourish, intelligible light had always need, needed an association with religion of some kind. Plato had borrowed the language of mystery religions. The Middle Ages had filled the world with the glory of divine light of many kinds. For Ficino and Renaissance thinkers, God or Christ was imminent present wherever we under understood something, however modest. Nature for Bruno was God in things. For better or worse, the dominant discourse of science and other intellectual endeavors no longer thinks in these terms. A little bit of religion added to your experiments. The same sentiments have been expressed in many other ways. Weber's disenchantment of the modern world, the twilight of the gods. Where there was once intelligible light in our minds, there are now but electrical impulses and magnetic scans. I would not want to leave you on this occasion on such a lugubrious note. Lux intelligibilis is no longer with us. But it has left us with some things that we might think worth hanging on to. It has inspired, for example, medieval artists and poets. It has inspired apologies for religious toleration. It has inspired philosophers to describe the universe in an hitherto unimagined, way, unimagined ways. Perhaps it is anyway time to wake up like Alice from a dream. Men and women cannot live by intelligible light alone. For those of you who have seen an atom of meaning in what I have said, and even for those of you who have not, wine and canapes await. If I may, though, I shall add just one final brief thought. We are accustomed nowadays to see the history of the world, or parts of it, in a hundred objects. I have offered you 
a brief history of one metaphor, an idea that had, for better or worse, influenced profoundly the way we think. We should not forget that ideas, too, have their history, ones that tell us very much. Thank you. Dilwyn, let me start by saying what, an, what a tremendous honor it is to speak after a scholar like you. Let me also start by congratulating, again, congratulating you again for um, the chair that um, UCL has given you, an immensely um, deserving distinction um, after so many years of not only scholarship, but also wonderful service to the institution, to the department, the faculty, and UCL as a whole, and most recently, of course, um, service to Selks. Um, what a daring enterprise to set up this school, and what a um, wonderful success. Um, the lecture has given you um, a very impressive insight of what a Renaissance scholar really is. And I speak here as a very limited modern historian, a historian of the 18th and 19th century, where my colleagues specialize in wars of seven years, or one battle, or comparing two battles. Um, and here you have um, a Renaissance um, scholar who easily goes from Plato to modern Zulu translations of Alice in Wonderland, from St. John to St. Paul to Tostado, and um, covering in immense geographical um, range, looking for ideas and texts and metaphors um, on an almost global um, scale. This is truly um, impressive in the field of historical scholarship to see a colleague being able to illustrate the way how Renaissance scholars work in, in such an accessible um, way. Um, Dilwyn has also given us a wonderful illustration of what the UCL um, Italian department um, stands for. People in my faculty, in other departments, they sometimes think an Italian department is a place where they know about Verdi, Mafia, and pasta and not much more, but what has distinguished um, um, this department in its long history, going back to wonderful people like Panizzi and Carlo Pepoli and so forth, is that these are all incredibly cosmopolitan scholars. They are at home in Italy, in Italy and its various regions, but they are also citizens um, of the world, which can speak in a lecture about um, Egypt as competently as they speak about Karadji near Florence. And um, I think in many respects um, Dilwyn's work is characteristic of this tradition in the Italian department. Um, just think about his work on um, Copernicus where he easily moves from Prussia, Poland to all the travels um, 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 going with Copernicus around um, Europe and his ideas, and he had illustrations of this very, way how he follows um, ideas um, across the continent. This is what an Italian department also um, does. It sees Italy in a much wider European um, context. I think what we can all take um, with us from this lecture, even if we work on very, very um, different topics is that we cannot understand um, the Renaissance without understanding um, antiquity. That's maybe obvious, but it involves studying the flow of ideas and the origins of ideas. And that makes a Renaissance scholar very different from other historians. But also, if you look at it from the modern perspective, as Dilwyn did in the conclusion to his um, lecture, we can't understand the modern world without this leg legacy of Neoplatonism and um, Renaissance scholarships. We can't understand our modern texts without knowing other periods, and maybe that should encourage us all to think um, in longer, wider historical 
periods. How does one become a scholar like Dilbin? Um, I have only partial insights into that. There are many people here who know um, Dilbin um, from other aspects of his um, life. The one thing that I share with Dilbin for almost 20 years is that we have a um, secret competition um, who manages to be first to grab a seat in rare books in the British Library. <laughs> the only reason why I think I have been, there, there are two reasons why I think I've been able to beat Delvin more recently. One is that a director of Selks sometimes has to pass first by the department. The other reason is that just um, my children are still very small and the exact timing of the school run in the morning makes it sometimes possible that I arrive um, a little earlier. But it has happened more than once to me that Mr. Anthony at the issue desk asked me, why is Dilvin Knox not yet there? <laughs> so it is, it is very, very hard work, as we have also some of um, representatives of the administrative side um, um, of UCL here. Don't worry, even in the library, Dilvin doesn't think only about Renaissance scholarship, he thinks also about students, and whenever the online connection there doesn't work, he gets worried that he loses touch with UCL. Um, so it's hard, hard work, lots of reading, and I think the lecture was a wonderful reminder that also these old-fashioned aspects of scholarship, like reading books, <laughs> can um, show incredible benefits and fruits. So um, please join me in thanking Dilwyn once more for a wonderful lecture.